Welcome to another super duper exciting episode of Cadaver Dogs Podcast. I am Rob Sercha. I am Devin Shepard. And I'm David B. Jacobs. And we are your wonderful, vicious hounds of the Cadaver Dogs Podcast. How you doing today, mutts? Wait, are we mutts, are we dogs, or are we hounds? <laughs> you guys are hounds. I was asking the audience how they're doing, oh. but how are you doing, hounds? Wait, no, we're dogs. <laughs> we're the cadaver dogs. I call us the hound. We're the cadaver dogs, but I usually call us the hounds. Wait, am I living in... I'm living in a Mandela effect. It... <laughs> I still don't know how to answer the how are you doing question. <laughs> See, see, Mutz, th- th- this is the crazy thing that you guys don't realize as listeners is how often we fuck up the intro. It's like we've done it 40, 50 times now, and we fuck it up constantly. And I'm leaving this in the fucking edit. I don't give a shit. I don't give a shit. You know why? Because I- I- I'm in a really good mood. I want to tell you guys why. Because I finally watched Cocaine Bear, and it was so cool to see Ray Liotta's last movie because I actually worked with him for a solid year. Wait, on what? On Shades of Blue. Him and uh, Jenny from The Block. I, I never really saw Jenny from the block except for one time when I sat next to her for like half an hour and I was texting instead of working. But Ray Liotta, I would see constantly. Wait, I love that you call her Jenny from the block like we're in the fucking 90s. <laughs> well, I forgot her name for a sec. Jennifer Lopez. <laughs> That's why. I did not know that was who that was. <laughs> <laughs> Jennifer Lopez. I was sitting next to her on a bench and like not working for like half an hour. And then I looked over and was like, Oh, the Jennifer Lopez. I'm like, hey. Then she like, I could tell she sat next to me because she didn't want to talk to anyone. And she was like, hi. I was like, all right. So I just went along texting. And then she was probably like, all right, this guy's cool. He's not going to bother me. Yeah, because yeah. the second that Rob starts talking, I think it's very clear that you're not as cool as <laughs> you are. I know. I, it, that's like before I was married, that was my entire dating experience was my first impression would be like up here. Then they get to know me and they're like, oh, never mind. Which is, which is so which is so <laughs> fucked up because it's supposed to be the opposite. You're supposed to go in under the radar and then they're like, oh, this guy's actually cool. Like, yeah. You're not supposed to give high expectations. Well, to be fair, Rob, when you started talking to them is when you would be like, hey, let's steal a boat. And then they would realize that you're serious and that you're actually going to steal a boat. And they're like, no, let's don't steal a boat. All right. Well, you know, I couldn't have been that serious because <laughs> it turns out, I, A, I don't know how to do a, drive a boat. And B, I was like ridiculously drunk. So, you know. This is Rob's dating life. This is this is a true story. This wasn't a dating life. This was like an onset experience at a bar with a bunch of people in their 20s who had been working for 17 hours every day on a piece of shit indie movie. So, we were making bad decisions. That sounds about right. Yeah. yeah. Been there. Yeah. Definitely been there. Definitely. Indeed. Okay, so I do I recommend Cocaine Bear. I think it okay. was everything we expected it to be, but it's also very gory, which is what I wanted to. Yes, I like Cocaine Bear. I love that for Elizabeth Banks. <laughs> well, it's on Peacock right now, apparently, because I just spent $20 on it on uh, Amazon. And then my dad was like, oh, yeah, by the way, it's free on Peacock now. And I'm like, oh, thanks, Dad. No. Well, I don't have <laughs> Peacock, so I guess I'll go rent it yeah. for $20. I have Peacock. I can just give you my Peacock. Hey, can I have your peacock? I know what you're trying to do. I'm just not letting you. I'm not letting you. (laughs) I'm trying to fucking do it. 
Peacocks aside, you are you have some cool stuff to talk about, right? Yeah, man. I got to go to the Overlook Film Festival a couple weeks ago, which was super awesome. It's a festival. It's a genre fest I've been wanting to go to for fucking ever. Yeah, I saw a lot of really cool horror films. I saw Renfield with Nick Cage, which was awesome. I saw this really amazing Australian film called Late Night with the Devil with David Desmalchian. Huh. David, are you going to go see Renfield today? day of the recording after yep. this i really liked it it's really silly it's really silly that's what i want well anyway on that topic uh you guys can hear about the night flyer if you're interested which has like the ugliest vampire of any movie ever i think episode 22 the oh, night flyer slash night crawler Ooh. which uh, we probably recorded a little over a year ago yeah, yeah because guys guess what this is our second anniversary episode it is Woo! that is two years of listening to us geniuses babble and are you i mean you're not tired yet or else you wouldn't be here so <laughs> unless this is your first episode then welcome stay <laughs> stay yes listen to some older ones <laughs> all all 300 of you once we've hit two years you know that we're like sticking around so yeah <laughs> well congrats guys Two years, two years is really great. Hell yeah. Yeah. Congratulations. Oh, we all need to like, we, we need to like grab drinks or something to celebrate two years, the three of us. We do. Yeah, let's do yeah. it. Yeah. So let's get into it. What do you say? All right, let's do it. We've been doing it for two years. Let's do it for, this is going into our third onward. Going into our third year three. Devin, <laughs> why don't you tell us about this crazy movie? Hell is a teenage girl. Devil's Kettle high schoolers Anita, Needy, Lesnicki, and Jennifer Check are Biffs. Needy is so-called normal, and Jennifer is a total babe. But that doesn't stop them from doing absolutely everything together. One night, Jennifer convinces Needy to attend a local rock show, yes, they call it a rock show, for the indie band Low Shoulder. Jennifer has been stalking the lead singer on MySpace, and he is absolutely salty. But once the show starts, tragedy strikes. A giant fiery blaze breaks out, killing several people and burning the bar into like legitimate ashes within minutes. Luckily, Needy and Jennifer make it out alive, but in total shock. The band, Low Shoulder, asks the girls if they want to chill in their van to recover. Jennifer follows, but Needy basically says, fuck that, and leaves Jennifer alone with the boys. The next day, Jennifer is acting hella weird. And by weird, I mean like actually really normal. This big tragedy just happened and she's practically laughing at their dead classmates. Like what the fuck, Jennifer, what's going on? After school, Jennifer seduces a grieving football player and brings him into the woods for a sympathy blowy. Oh, wait, no, she just eats him instead. A month later and the school has been grieving the loss of those in the fire as well as the disemboweled football player that they found in the woods. Things aren't going so hot. Actually, not even Jennifer looks hot. Her hair is lifeless, she's breaking out, and she looks tired. Needy recognizes that something strange is happening with her best friend, but doesn't really catch on until while Needy is having sex with her boyfriend, Chip, she gets an overwhelming feeling that something isn't right. And she actually is right. Jennifer just ate another boy. Jennifer later confides in Needy that at the night of the fire, Low Shoulder did a ritual on her and killed her. They think that they sacrificed a virgin in order to become more famous. The only thing is Jennifer is not a virgin. She's not even a backdoor virgin. So as a punishment, I guess, now she's a succubus. She's forced to feed off boys in order to stay alive and stay powerful. Fun and games, blah, blah, blah. All things come to a culmination at the night of the big dance. Jennifer is about to kill Chip when Needy swoops in and basically almost murders her best friend, Jennifer. 
Chip does end up dying in the process, which only fuels Needy's anger toward Jennifer. Needy stabs Jennifer in the tit. No, the heart, murdering her best friend. But she doesn't get away with it. Newly formed badass Needy goes to an asylum to serve for the murder of her best friend. But those gates won't hold her for long. Because the thing is, when you get bit by a demon, some of the powers get transferred to you. This is Jennifer's Body, directed by Karen Kusama, written by Diablo Cody, starring Megan Fox, Amanda Seyfried, and a bunch of like really awesome people. Low Shoulder has to be the worst band name in all of history. No. Oh, so terrible. And their <laughs> their logo also. It is so bad. <laughs> and their songs are like just like the worst type of like indie trash. How They're so you? fucking bad. They're a national treasure. They save people <laughs> from the fire. I'm not going to take that back, David. I'm not going to take it back. They have like one song. Yeah. I unironically love their song. <laughs> you would, wouldn't you? <laughs> no, but like, same. I was trying to figure out. I'm like, okay, are they trying to make it bad? Because I actually, it's kind of a bop. The music in this movie is fucking killer. The music is good. I think they're just making it commercial. They're making it very mainstream. So it's easy to like, dismiss it as like, oh, this is just that mainstream shill song. But it's it's still like, that. that's fun to listen to. I know. They're like a bad ripoff of Coldplay. And by the way, Coldplay fucking sucks. No, they're Maroon 5. He's Adam Levine. Yeah, they're Maroon 5. He really wants to be Adam Levine. Yeah, he wants to be Adam Levine. Yeah, they're like a mix of both. It's like Maroon 5 and Coldplay, but worse than both. So I'm like, wow. Ironically, the song was actually written by, uh, he, he does play one of the band members. His name is, I want to say Mark Levine. No relation. I looked it up. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Wait, is he from a band? Should we know him? I'm going to look it up. Thank you. I was going to look this up and I completely Who forgot. Wrote, Who wrote Through the Trees? Through the Trees. Through the Trees. It's a terrible song. Ryan Levine. Ryan Levine wrote that. And the, there's another one, interestingly. They also performed the song called One More Night that he wrote. I don't, I don't remember that being in the movie. <laughs> they do play a different song at the dance, though, I believe. Um, it seems like he does have a band called Wildling. Huh. So oh, wow. you guys should look into that and li listen to them because they're small. So let let's help them because I like Through the Trace. <laughs> I hope they're better than Low Shoulder. You know what? Yeah, if if they're not, if the lead singer is not Satanic Adam Brody, then I just don't care. <laughs> so speaking of star talent, like this movie is fucking packed. There's like everyone in it. You have Adam mm -hmm. Brody, you have J.K. Simmons, you have Chris Pratt, Amanda Sig Seyfried. How the fuck do you say Seyfried, it? It, it, it is Seyfried. Seyfried. I said it wrong. It, it looks yeah. like it's supposed to be Siegfried, but it's Seyfried. Megan Fox at the height of her like fame. It's got everyone in it. Why the fuck did it flop? Yeah. A lot of this has to do, unfortunately, with Megan Fox being at the height of her fame. Because if you guys remember, then she was very famous, but not really taken seriously as an actor, despite being a damn good actor who deserves to be taken seriously. I know she was so good in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. She's so fucking good in this. She she is a good actor. She's especially good at comedy. She should have got so many fucking more roles. But instead, she just got typecast as uh, the, the sexy lady who's in the Transformers movies and fights with Michael Bay, which on her side. <laughs> and this film was definitely marketed with her as the sexy lady, right? Like 
we all read yeah. these articles, I think, and, and we'll link it in, in the show notes. But yep. yeah, essentially, like this film got really fucked on its marketing because they targeted towards basically a straight male audience that would come and go see it for, quote, hot Megan Fox, which like, yeah, let's all agree that she's very hot. But like, in reality, this movie, yes, it's very sexual uh, and, and shows all that stuff. But there's, you know, it's it's made by two women who are all of their stuff is basically about feminist stories and fuck the patriarchy. And these are for female audiences. And that is very much present in this film. So why did it flop? Probably because they were marketing towards the wrong audience. Yeah, Kusama and Cody, the director and writer, respectively, saw what the marketing was doing and protested. There is one email, I forget which one of them wrote the email, it's probably Kusama, but it might have been Cody, um, wrote to the marketing team and was like, hey, you guys are doing this all wrong. This is not our target demographic. Uh, we made this movie for teenage girls who your marketing strategy right now is distancing from the movie and you're you're bringing in this audience of boys who will not like it because it isn't what you're selling them i remember when this came out i did not see it in theaters because everyone who did told me it was terrible there was one kid specifically he went to see the movie for sexy megan fox yeah and then he came out of it and i was like oh what you think of it and you just saw this, like, look of complete dumbstruck confusion. Like, what the fuck did I just watch? She was like, it wasn't really sexy Megan Fox. It, I don't know what that was. Was <laughs> his reaction. <laughs> and I'm just like, yeah, that makes sense. Now that I've finally seen the movie, I'm like, it's you're right. It's not what it was selling you. <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, I went to go see this movie as not only a horror fan, a teenage horror fan, but also a huge fan of Diablo Cody, who was coming off of Juno. This movie was everything for me. And it sucks to be someone who like to be a teenage girl and be like, yes, this movie is amazing. I relate so much to these characters. I love this storyline. I like really like see my life through these characters in a really unique and new way. And just to hear everyone pan it at every single opportunity that they get because it's not making enough money or because it's not hitting the right audience and reviews are just fucking terrible. And that this is considered a yeah. or was considered a failure at the time. And then you're like, wait, this is me on the screen. Like, well, I'm not Megan Fox, but one can dream. And I forgot to mention the marketing team's response to that email was, and I quote, Jennifer Sexy, she steal your boyfriend. Yeah, which is why they should market it to young girls who would bring their boyfriends. It was like fucking Twilight. Guys don't usually, it's harder for them to bring their boyfriends to movies. It's easier for the girls to bring their boyfriends to movies. And we've seen this through like the success of Twilight because guys went to see it. But guys would be more likely to see it if like Megan Fox is in it. But yeah. you don't have to market to them. All they have to be is, girlfriend, oh, I want to see this movie, blah, blah, blah. Oh, Megan Fox is in it. They're like, oh, I guess. They're like, yeah. And they would go. Megan <laughs> you know I mean? Fox is amazing. But this is something that we've learned. This movie, like, despite it being for a female audience, at least the studio cut, the one that was released in the studio, is very sexualized of the two women. Um, Rob, you mentioned the makeout scene. And like it is really fascinating that even though it it, it is meant to be a feminist film, there's still very much a seemingly male lens on the female bodies in this film. Do you guys agree? Not really. Really? Well, I, I, I think I think that's kind of to the benefit of the movie. I mean, she is kind of like a succubus. So I feel like she's portraying herself for the male gaze in order to feed off men. So I think like 
sexualizing them is kind of like on purpose. I agree it is somewhat sexualized, but it isn't like the, the overly sexualized version of that scene is Mulholland Drive, where all of a sudden the two women just take off their shirts and you see their breasts full frame and then they just like are making out passionately or whatever. None of that is in this movie. They're like dressed in their normal clothes. Uh, they're like wearing t-shirts or whatever and they kiss and it's it's about their bisexuality like it's relevant it's not sexualized for the sake of being sexualized it is part of the movie it is part of the story but the marketing team definitely did not get that memo and yeah even while they were filming that scene fox and seyfried were like this is all that's going to be in the trailer isn't it yeah yeah, no, I don't agree that like, I, I still found it like highly sexualized. I think part of the the holdback too is like they are teenage characters. So maybe that had something to do with it is like, hmm. there's only so far you, you should be able to go when you're portraying like 17 year old, maybe 18 year old girls. I'm not actually sure how old they are in the film. I think 17. Yeah. So it would be really weird to show them taking off their tops. But one thing that I do agree with you is that, yeah, this movie is obviously a bi film. And, you know, we're, we're entered in the beginning where we start with Needy. She's retelling the story. She's recalling the story of what happened to Jennifer, which is interesting when you think about it, because technically we're being told the story through Needy's POV. And I think it's very clear mm. that Needy does have a crush on Jennifer and it is like exploring these feelings throughout the film. Yeah. So a sexualized lens on Jennifer does make sense. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. There are really two instances where Jennifer does not have the upper hand. It's when she's killed at the end and when she's killed in the beginning. Like those are the only two times where she is not the top of the power dynamic. And for that reason, we're kind of seeing her hypersexualized preying on men in high mm -hmm. school, which is in reality, you'd much more likely see it the other way around where older men are preying on younger women. So I feel like the sexuality was really important, like David says, to the uh, core of the film. Yeah. When watching this film this time, I got the read and this is probably why I was so into it in high school. I honestly actually haven't seen it since like college. Jennifer's character is pretty much like a woman defined by the patriarchy. She, it feels like yep. she has this need to dress older, to dress sexier in order to, to fit in and feel powerful, even before she's a succubus, you know, it really does seem like she is a woman who is struggling with only getting confidence and only getting power through like the approval of men or the approval of sex, which we see a lot of teenage girls doing. And a lot of young women in their 20s, I feel like this is something that we were all struggling with is like, that we need this male attention in order to feel beautiful. Now, of course, like eventually, we mm. learn that's not true. But I definitely see Jennifer struggling with this, which is why I think the succubus uh, metaphor makes sense to me. Yeah, I also love her dynamic with the character Needy. Because Jennifer is obviously the one who's more needy than needy. Oh, totally. So I think you're like 100% hmm. right with everything you just said. That's a cool observation. Yeah, I love that she's named needy um, because she is playing the role of like the pretty girl sidekick, which you see in all the sitcoms and cartoon shows and whatnot. There's always the pretty girl and her sidekick. And that that's who needy is. But yeah, you're kind of right that Jennifer is the one who's actually a lot more needing of attention but also just with some sort of affirmation because she's 
dehumanized by everything around her. Like, M Megan Fox has openly said, like, yeah, this role reminds me a lot of my actual life and yeah. the actual persona that was thrust on her by the media. Like, she didn't choose to shoot herself in a sexualized fashion in Transformers. <laughs> like, that was Michael Bay shooting her that way. She didn't really... Like, she's dated the same guy for, like, a decade or whatever, but the media still wants to frame her as being promiscuous. Uh, it's it's very bizarre how everyone treated her. Yeah. And, yeah. and look at it in the context of this film in high school. It's interesting because what I love so much about Jennifer's character is that they do show that softer side of her and they do show her actually struggling, which is, is beautiful through the sexualization of her character. They still show that. And it's a reason why needy and her are friends, right? Like that's why we believe that they're mm. friends is because they really do have a strong bond and are able to like connect with one another on that level. But everyone, you know, the first shot we get of needy who's waving at her friend, Jennifer and like cheering her on during her, what is it? Color guard flag twirling. I forget what it's called. Mm -hmm. And Su Chin from Juno come <laughs> whispers, <laughs> oh, you're such lesbian gay. And it's like everyone else in the school also sexualized Jennifer and only sees Jennifer through like a mm -hmm. sexualized version of herself and not as an actual like human being. Sandbox love never dies. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I agree with that. It's uh, I think both Needy and Jennifer, like Chip says that no, they don't have anything in common, but really mm -hmm. it's that both of them have the other one inside of them but like repressed mm -hmm. that jennifer has that needy persona inside of her but has to repress it so that she can become the thing that is expected of her yeah needy also has that jennifer persona inside of her that she actually does have this sexualization of herself as well and wants to be more like Jennifer, but that is repressed that she can fit her stereotype and, you know, try to pursue her heteronormative relationship with, with Chip. 1000%. And I think it's, it's a clear comment, too, on how the patriarchy shapes women, right? A lot of readings of this film are looking at Needy as the Madonna character, essentially, and mm -hmm. Jen as the sexualized, like, harlot character or the Lilith character. And something that's constantly talked about is, you know, these are the two ways that women can be portrayed in media, especially through a male lens. And I think this film, specifically touching on what you're saying, David, shows that there are more sides to women than that. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I think it does a good job of portraying that through Needy with her relationship with Chip. I also kind of want to talk about how it, it frames the patriarchy's fear of women who utilize their power. Yeah. Yeah. And how it's kind of highlights this dichotomy and this tension between masculine industry and like female natural process. Like it is mankind's role to conquer nature in a way. So when Jenner eats the footballer, and uh, she has basically my favorite line in the movie when the guy's like crying over his best friend burning to death. And she says, you know, the last thing he said to me was we'd make a totally banging couple. And the guy sniffles <laughs> and he goes, he said banging. And then <laughs> and she takes him into the woods and all the uh, forestry animals gather around to see her eat him. Snow White style. Yeah. You know, so it's almost this uh, Druidism versus like Christianity, like you'd see in something like The Green Knight, which is also a great movie if you guys haven't seen it, and an interesting poem 
But the Druidism, like Green Knight has uh, portrays this tension between New Age Christianity, which is engagement with the divine or something that is beyond the natural, which you could look at like today's uh, kind of religious um, pull, which is like materialism or industry or whatever. And you would look at that as like mankind versus like the natural world order of things, which is nature. And it's mankind's desire and purpose to conquer that which is natural. And that which is natural is the chaos that is female. You can also see this in pretty much every religious tradition that dates back to like Sumerianism when like the hyper-masculine force slays the dragon that is chaos. Now in this one, chaos would be Jennifer and her understanding of her power over men's desires, which causes them to act illogically. And she channels that. Oh man, that's so fucking cool. And this movie does have a lot of religious symbols in it. One that David had pointed out earlier was Jennifer's name is Jennifer Check, like JC, like Jesus Christ. <laughs> Needy's mother, played by Amy Sedaris, fucking for one scene, which is amazing. Uh, uh, David, this was a point that you, that you had made before we recorded, if you want to take over. Yeah. Um, so Needy's mother says, uh, I, I, I had a dream where you were crucified, just like JC. So I took that as being like you know, an English teacher in high school told me that anytime a character has the initials JC, it's Jesus Christ, and we should, we should look at it from that lens. So think of that the next time you watch a John Carpenter movie. John Carpenter, JC, oh my That's god. Wild. Dude, 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 my brain. I would want to dude. think of this as a stretch, except in the movie they literally say JC, not Jesus, JC. Yeah. yeah, calling attention to the fact that, yeah, no, Jennifer's initials are fucking JC. And is she crucified? Yes. Does she die for her sins? Kinda. Does she get resurrected? Yes, she does. <laughs> like, it's all the Jesus Christ stuff. But I also think it's kind of a misdirect. Like, I kept going with it because it's in the dream. It's Needy who's getting crucified, not Jennifer. Right. And in a sense, Needy's the one who actually gets punished for our sins, that she's the one who vanquishes the evil. But also, like, this entire thing is based in them having sex and being women. <laughs> Like they're they're not really doing any of the Jesus stuff. They're kind of perverting the Jesus stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really what it is. That's more so just a perversion of the Jesus Christ story. It's mocking that religious symbolism. Mm. I kind of want to slightly disagree with you because I think you're okay. you almost have it, but I don't think it's a perversion. What do you I think? think uh like I was talking about how there's the opposites between like Druidity and Christianity and the natural and the industrial. I think this one is talking about the mankind versus womankind. That if the JC of the Bible was crucified to save mankind from his sins, then the JC of this one is to kind of save womankind from their sins. And by doing so, yes. they embrace that which they are. I like that. So although she is the Antichrist, she is still serving the same kind of purpose, that of uh, self-sacrifice to proliferate uh, th the rest of her followers, which would be needy. And needy is in a way one of her followers. So I, I wouldn't call it a perversion in like the strict sense, more like an inversion. Another key distinction i like what you said is that jesus is all about forgiveness and like you are you are forgiven you will you will whatever you do just confess and you'll be fine with jennifer and needy it's no fuck these men let's go fucking murder low shoulder and the audience is just cheering them on it's like it, it's it's saying that some people are beyond forgiveness yeah but it's worth noting that like needy is actually going after revenge jennifer is eating lesser men who yeah 
are are not <laughs> kind of guilty of the crimes of like the patriarchy, if that's what we're calling it. You know, these are kind of like the men who stand outside the norm. They don't really use their power over them. Yeah, I, I totally agree with everything you guys are saying. I, I really love this read. But the needy character, I think in the end, I mean, it, it's just going into what she's grown into, right? It, it, yeah. It's her giving the power because she never was able to stand up to Jennifer. And then she finally stands up to Jennifer. I think it's just an overdramatization, essentially, of what will happen when you come to full power. It's basically the ending of Teeth. I just think this is a much better movie. It's very much the same ending as <laughs> it Teeth. It is the ending of Teeth. Also so did you notice who that was in the car? <laughs> oh, <laughs> remind car. me. Lance Henriksen. What? Yeah. I did not Amazing know Amazing cameo, huh? We talked about him on Pumpkinhead. Wow. Yeah, we did. Very interesting. <laughs> so Jennifer is a succubus. I think that was like pretty cool because we really don't see a lot of like succubus monsters in films. Well, at least not strictly, although it is kind of a trope. Like for instance, in the movie Species, the monster is basically mm. a succubus or a siren, you know, kind of a mythological or biblical creature that seduces men and then murders them. I don't know if there's a whole lot more to say about that, uh, except in the uh, original lore, they actually live off semen. So in this one, they eat your mm. liver, I think. It's true. It's on the Wikipedia. <laughs> it is. Are they all women? Is Succubi usually- Yes. Succubi yeah. are women, Incubi are men. Huh. So the band Incubus named themselves after a male rape monster. <laughs> oh, awesome. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. Think of that next time you listen to Drive. <laughs> I'm going to name my oh, band man. Succubus. Nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> On a similar point, um, Devin, in your summary, you said that you felt like Jennifer was turned into a succubus as punishment for her not being a virgin. And I thought that was interesting because I read it as punishment for low shoulder, not for Jennifer. Yeah, but she is technically punished because she does. Yeah. Yeah. It is making me wonder now, who do we think is being punished? Because low shoulder isn't even aware that there was any issue until eventually they wind up getting fucking murdered. Yeah. Wait, that's a really <laughs> good point. Yeah, because they do become successful and like really famous. Yeah. yeah. So there is like no punishment for them. And, and the person that kills them is not Jennifer. Well, yeah. Yeah, that's kind of like the idea though, right? Yeah. Because uh, like men in patriarchy sacrifices women's for men's gain all the time. Yes. So isn't that kind of like the image they're going for? Yeah, 1000%. Just in this one sense, JB is the uh, inversion of Christ. She was able to give uh, womankind kind of their vengeance. I mean, it, it would be kind of interesting if it's a punishment for the shoulder because it's it's the punishment where it's like, oh, you sacrifice someone who uh, is not a virgin and she has independence and a mind of her own. So, haha, she's not dead and now she fucking hates you. So deal with that. And that's your punishment. Yeah, but but JC, uh, JB didn't actually do anything to low shoulder. It had to fall on Needy's yeah. hands. But Needy still was acting on Jennifer's behalf and only had the power because of Jennifer. So it was still indirectly that series of events that led to their downfall. Yeah. So you kind of hinted at it earlier, David, but you seem to think that there was a lot to do with bisexual themes in this movie. Yeah, I do. I mean, this time watching a movie, I was really queuing into them that it's almost like you guys know how in a nightmare on elm street 2 uh they use freddy as a metaphor for jesse's homosexuality yes so in this one you can kind of read it similarly where jennifer acts as a metaphor for needy's bisexuality that she she keeps like ignoring her boyfriend and going out with the woman who she is obviously infatuated with and there is this temptation to go into that and even looking at that where Jennifer is the 
bisexual metaphor, the fact that she is murdering men is like, we don't need men, we can also just have each other. Men are not required in this formula. And I'm like, oh, this is this is really cool. There's a lot here. Yeah, but is that really like a bisexual metaphor, kind of like a lesbian feminist metaphor, if they think men are obsolete? Yeah, that's what I would say, which is like the importance of Chip in this story is that Needy still loves Chip and they still go through having sex. Like, that is still very much important. I mean, I agree that I think Needy absolutely does really love Chip as well. That's why it's bisexual and not homosexual. I think that she is torn between these worlds. I mean, she's a 17-year-old in 2009. Bi-erasure is a real thing. People aren't taught about that necessarily. And I think she is very, very confused and isn't sure which of these two sides of her sexuality is real and that that she's like almost feels like she needs to make a choice in it and then it because she has that conflict jennifer becomes perverted becomes something evil and demonic Mm. that she is fighting against and trying to escape from so that she can just be the quote-unquote normal person until eventually she winds up with neither of them I really love that read, and I think that feeds into the main theme that we do want to talk about when we compare it with the other film. Would you mind if we put a flag in that and come back to it and move on to the other film? I am totally fine with that. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, because I think I think you totally fucking nailed it. Yes, cliffhanger. Yeah. Audiences, hang on. <laughs> I mean, I guess, I guess uh, the best way to bridge that gap now is for David to let us know about the next film. The students of Harrington High have always suspected their teachers are from another planet. This time, they're right. An alien invasion has taken root, breeding parasites and planting them in the brains of the faculty. They come out odd. The drama teacher gets a glow up. The history teacher suddenly wants everyone to tell him about their family trees. The principal is missing and the coach, uh, well, he's a hard ass, so actually no change there. Once the staff are all infected, the aliens move on to the student body, and soon only six kids remain on the outside. Casey, a brain, Sean, an athlete, Stokely, a basket case, Delilah, a princess, Zeke, a criminal, and Marybeth, the new girl. Though these six wouldn't regularly interact in their daily lives, as they now work together to fend off the aliens, they learn that none of them fit the stereotypes quite as clearly as it would seem. The athlete wants to quit the football team to focus on his studies. The goth girl is only pretending to be a lesbian to keep herself at a distance. The drug dealer is also a science prodigy. For fuck's sake, the pretty girl wears glasses! It's a total break from the social hierarchy. Uh, Of course, given the body snatchers pod people less threat at hand, uh, all of these reveals only serve to make the kids question if the others are secretly aliens already. So they create a test. It turns out that Zeke's homemade drug, SCAT, guaranteed to jack you up, works as a dehydration agent. See, these aliens are water-based and require near constant hydration to stay alive, so SCAT acts as pretty much a death sentence. So they all get high to determine who's an alien. Oh, and Delilah is an alien. Those glasses really should have been a dead giveaway. It's completely out of character. They then return to the school where everyone has embraced the hive mind and uniformity where the football team is beginning to infect a rival school. They need to find the queen. Is it the principal? 
She is in charge, but no. To the coach. Now it fits, since he's certainly scary enough, but no. It's goddamn Mary Beth the new girl. Actually, she pitches the whole do become an alien thing pretty well. I can make you a part of something so special, so perfect, so fearless. But Casey, now the last human left would rather be afraid. He shoves that scat right into her, guaranteed to jack you up. This is very hard to say it without laughing. One month later, all the infected are back to normal. That poorly matched couple is back to fighting in the halls 24-7. Sean has left the football team and is now dating Stokely, who's learned to wear pink. Zeke has taken Sean's place on the team, but still does his drug thing as well. And Casey and Delilah, who by the way run the school paper I forgot to mention, are now a hot item fielding offers from all the outlets that want to tell their story. Happy ending? This is The Faculty, directed by Robert Rodriguez from a script by Kevin motherfucking Williamson, starring everybody. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I wish Kevin Williamson's middle name was actually motherfucking. Maybe Might it is. Well Might, Might as well, well be. be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this one was a fun one for Kevin Williamson. He did pick it up. Uh, he wasn't the original writer, but then came on to originally write and then direct it, but then ended up just writing and passing it on to, to Robert Rodriguez to direct. It's an interesting one for sure, because obviously Kevin Williamson's coming off of slasher films at this point, really popular teen slashers, Scream. and then comes to do <laughs> Scream. Yeah, he, he's coming off Scream. And then uh, was, was I Know What You Did Last Summer? Well, yeah. Also before this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a line in this movie where they reference both Nev Campbell and Jennifer Love Hewitt as a love letter to Kevin Williamson's other movies. Oh, yeah. You mean when he's buying their videos of them being topless? Yeah. What a exactly. love letter. Thanks, that's, Kev. That's a love letter. That's right. <laughs> but this is Kevin Williamson's. This is his alien movie, which is kind of fun. Yeah. A lot of thing inspiration. Yeah, it definitely felt like a, a lot of thing inspiration. I mean, come on, that fucking scene where they're all <laughs> testing each other by taking the scat. Not only is it thrilling, but it it is straight up the thing. Yeah, but I don't know. It felt like a spoof of the thing. A lot of this movie kind of feels like a spoof, but I wish they went further. It seems like it could have been like a sci-fi scream, but not quite. There's like a slight bit of like tongue in cheek and wicking at the camera, but not enough to actually really make you laugh most of the time. It reminds me a lot of the ending of an older movie called Creature. They explain the entire plot of the thing from another world towards the mm. end, and then they try to like electrocute it, and then it doesn't work. And yeah. they do the exact same thing in this movie when they talk yeah, about yeah. They're like, like uh, they, they wear their influences on their sleeve to the point where they they directly name several of them like Invasion of the Body Snatchers and, uh, and uh, the Puppet, Puppet Masters. Masters and Alien. Do they mention Alien? Yeah, they call Casey Sigourney Weaver. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they do. They do. <laughs> yeah. they do. And they, they mention the Puppet Masters, which is actually where they get the idea of what these types of creatures are. Right. I mean, all these references, though, that is Scream. That is Kevin Williamson. Like, yeah, we have them not as often as they are in Scream, but mm -hmm. they are referenced. And to the point where it, it is a central plot point of this film, that there are so many science fiction stories that are similar. The thing, Puppet Masters and, and Invasion of the Body Snatchers. I mean, Stokely uh, mentions when she's talking to Casey in the library and Casey has this idea mm. that maybe these aliens actually have been existing for a long time and that they are coming up with these fictionalized stories in order to trick the masses to think that anytime an alien falls out of the sky it no to trick them into no one having ever believed them yeah that makes sense. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a pretty uh, absurd philosophy, but... <laughs> One of one one of the things the movie does do sort of indirectly through that conversation and by calling back to movies like uh, The Body Snatchers and books like The Puppet Masters, which is also a movie, is that rather than having the conformity of like communism be the meta- metaphor mm. and kind of the uh, big threat towards uh, young people, it's almost like uh, media and just like our understanding of stories in media is kind of conforming all of us. And in this way, the movie itself is conforming to science fiction tropes. And that that's kind of the infectious aspect of these things. Kinda, yeah. I mean, it it definitely plays off like Body Snatchers, of course, is largely considered to be a metaphor for communism. Mm-hmm. The thing kind of has it. We have a whole episode on the thing. Just listen to that and hear all of our many thoughts on it. Then uh, Alien, I mean, it's about the horrors of capitalism. Mm-hmm. Ironically, the opposite of the thing, I guess. But they're all kind of about conformity to some extent. And this movie plays on that to bring that into the teenage high school sphere yeah like coming of age which in a lot of ways this is the science fiction breakfast club yes yes yeah and and conforming in this sense to a teenager is becoming an adult Mm -hmm. which is why we see the aliens attacking the faculty in the first place because they are the adults in the school yes so specifically yeah like you were saying david the the conformity it's it's the coming of age film of of growing up and basically losing what feels like your individuality as a teenager Mm, but there's also the the social hierarchy of of the school involved in that as well yeah well david brought up a really good point before we were recording i did in that if you were to compare all the uh characters to the breakfast club the one who really doesn't fit the mold is the alien yeah and the alien is the conforming force and like the breakfast club this movie is directly playing off high school supposed tropes and how people get stuck in these kind of categories and how that can negatively affect them but like the breakfast club they all kind of break their molds towards the end and thus live fuller lives and have arcs as characters but the alien is trying to stifle that. And in a way, it's it's really uh, talking about the school system at large and how authority and media and all these things kind of strive to conform us and keep us in our strict social molds. Yeah, I would argue that these characters are actually broken of the norm before the aliens even there. Um, when we're first introduced to uh, the football character, you know, he he's he already wants to quit the team in order to focus on his studies. Yeah. And and upon watching this film for another time, you know, I really started to look at the alien creature and question why she was targeting these teens specifically in order to like become friends with them and get really close with them and basically go on their hunt after this alien and came to the conclusion that it's because these are the teenagers that she's afraid will be rebelling against any sort of conformity mm-hmm. and she needs to to go in there and befriend them in order to push them in the right direction mm-hmm. i mean looking at stokely's character she learns that stokely's not actually a lesbian and that she is hiding that in order to stay to stay different from everybody essentially mm-hmm. and we see mary beth literally pushing stokely into sean to kind of like stoke stoke that fire of hey be heteronormative (laughs) even when she reveals herself she's like uh aren't you tired of being someone you're not yeah she she goes out of her way to uh befriend all the characters who are rebelling against their social stereotypes specifically stokely and zeke who are the ones who fit into these stereotypes that feel more rebellious 
Yeah. Like the other, she kind of just happens upon when they're the last ones who are not aliens. Um, and then she's like, well, I'm going to stick with these guys, obviously, because I got to convert them. <laughs> Z- yeah. Zeke is one of those strange stereotypes that we do run into of like wasted potential. But it's playing off the other stereotype is like the derelict who stayed behind, which is, I think, a more solidified social stereotype and stokely is playing off the like i, I don't know punk rocker lesbian whatever that stereotype Emo is goth chick. right that that's kind of a stereotype like of its time of the movie and uh we did kind of mention this a little bit that this movie is on that borderline of like gen x millennial where like the characters that are older are gen yeah. x but the characters they're playing kind of the early millennials but the way they're engaging with each other i think is more telling of like a Gen X kind of experience before cell phones and social media and all this. I think it's it's something that is definitely played up in this in this film. I mean, even the new even the tagline for this film was meet the alien generation. They're very much pushing this young new generation vibe mm-hmm. with the characters. It's really cringe. <laughs> it's really cringe. <laughs> but it was definitely like that was of the time. It was like, let's give the power to these young adults and they're the new generation. Josh Hartnett's haircut is cringe in this movie too. One thousand percent. I mean that was all that was a haircut that was popular back was then. Was it? I feel like, wasn't it? But I feel like the marketing is very much like, yeah, kids, we're hip too. How you doing, fellow children? <laughs> That's such a Robert Rodriguez thing to do, though, to like purposely be cringe. The marketing way more than the movie. Do you want to talk about the Tommy Hilfiger campaign? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so Tommy Hilfiger, which was a popular jeans company in the 90s that was largely seen as extremely mainstream and white preppy. Kids. I hate that you have to describe what Tommy Hilfiger is. Like, wow. <laughs> I like that I have to describe what Tommy Hilfiger is. I'm glad that I need to explain it. It, it was, there was a rumor which has been debunked that Tommy said, like, I don't want black people wearing my jeans. Um, that wasn't true, but it was a popular rumor. Oh, And geez. kind of influence the image around the jeans as this very white preppy thing but tommy wanted to to partner with a movie and even though people when companies when they branded with movies wouldn't usually go for genre fair this one he did the fucking weinsteins fuck the weinsteins but they managed to proposition this as like yo this is kevin williamson who's a hot writer right now robert rodriguez is a hot director right now this movie's super hit with the youngsters and we're going to be a big smash. So it was like a $20 million campaign or $30 million, something like that, just to sell jeans associated with this movie. And like you guys can look up the Tommy Hilfiger ad that they made on set where it's all the youth of the kids being like, I wear Tommy Hilfiger, motherfucker. And it is so cringy and completely <laughs> goes against everything the movie is trying to say <laughs> like it is the most conformist yeah that, and that, i think that's really it is like it is it is conformity and you'll see throughout the film the characters multiple characters wear tommy hilfiger clothes stokely wears it sean wears it those mm. were the two that i noticed right off the bat um obviously because there's a partnership but it's funny to see all these different kinds of people wearing the same brand 
because it does feed into this idea of mm. they're already conformed to this this mass like what is hip what is popular there's no escaping it it kind of adds this other layer to it that's a little dark because yeah. in the end you want them to be who they are except then stokely conforms the stokely's character yeah. is fucking weird in a way that yeah. like she doesn't make sense she does not make any fucking sense it's a great performance i, yeah. I love that actor and i wish she had more to do um we talked about her on the pod as well <laughs> it's her character is super similar to the girl in breakfast club it's like a blatant ripoff almost yeah. right i mean it's it's an homage i would say it's it's ali sheedy yeah yeah, she's like all dark and into like yeah, and then you know, she gets edgy shit, but then she just like lightens up and becomes more preppy. Does Ali Sheedy's character also wind up with the football player in that movie in The Breakfast Club? Yes, but yeah, but that I mean that was problematic then. Really, like the issue with it now is not that like she needs to like oh not wear as much makeup and dress in color to, in order to like be seen. It's more of like no, everyone else gets to be who they are, but she's the only one who changes who she is. I guess you could also argue, though, that maybe that was who she was all along and she was just scared to be herself. I think that is what the movie is arguing, but I think that's also kind of weird because there there's, isn't other goth characters in the movie. It's just her. So it, it, it kind of winds up saying like, oh, all these goth girls actually aren't goth. There aren't really lesbians. They're just pretending because they're they're scared yeah. of being social and extroverted. So they're they're just hiding. And with, with the right man, they will totally start wearing pretty colors and going to football games and being straight. And it's yeah. like, that's weird. It especially <laughs> bothered me when Sean does become an alien and is trying to convince Stokely to let him into the school. And he's like, no, it's fine. You'll be beautiful. Yo, Sean, she already is beautiful, bro. Like, yeah. what do you mean she will be beautiful? She's beautiful for who she is. <laughs> this is the whole point of the film. I mean, to be fair, at least in that moment, he is like an alien. Okay, fair. So if that was where it stopped, then you could say that like that is an antithesis of the movie. But then he he that winds up being what she does. People have talked about the ending a lot of this movie that a lot of people really don't like the ending. And I kind of agree with that. I was fine with it when I first saw it like 10 years ago, but it, it, it's a weird ending that does kind of go against the themes of the movie a lot, that they all just conform anyway. Zeke joins the football team. Casey, Elijah Wood's character, Elijah Wood's in this movie, by the way, um, Elijah Wood is dating the popular girl and talking about how everything has changed. Well, meanwhile, some other kid in the background is getting bullied by the same bullies he used to be bullied by. So... He's moved yeah. to a different place in the social hierarchy, but the hierarchy is still there. That's why I like this ending is because it is this this subtle darkness. I mean, when we're yeah. when we're looking at this mm -hmm. film, it, it is a coming of age film and it is talking about when you grow up, how do you adjust your individuality to basically the adult world? And like we said, adulting is conforming no matter what you're gonna get there like no matter what you're gonna have to pay taxes you're gonna have to do laundry you have to live a life like it's inescapable okay this only mm -hmm. just occurred to me but off of that it's interesting that when the kids become possessed by aliens they become more conformed to their stereotype when the adults become possessed by aliens they become more divergent they become more like who they might have been when they were younger that Piper Laurie is introduced as like this shy trauma teacher is like, oh no, I'm 
I'm the little drama teacher. Please give my students funding so we can put on guys and dolls. And then she becomes the an alien and something like super glow up. I am beautiful. I am glorious. <laughs> yeah, I love that. It yeah. shows that there's still like a struggle with individuality in the adult world exactly. as well. I mean, it, uh, it, they definitely comment on that in terms of that scene that you're talking about where she's begging, not begging, she's asking for more money. We see that they, that even the adults have to adhere to these social norms, that the town is a football town. And so the funding of the school has to go to football. They can't support these like unique artsy yeah. programs. There is a hierarchy within the world that they need to, to adhere to. Yeah. But, but I also think the aliens uh, force the faculty to be a little bit more professional. And in that way, they seem like less into their ridiculous tropes. They're just acting more in line with what they should be doing rather than what they shouldn't be doing. So they definitely as... shouldn't be stalking their students outside of his house. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but in in the professional sense, like a coach freaking out on a student, even like a hot headed football coach, he could still get chewed out by someone for that, and that technically is not in line with being a professional. Mm. But him just being stern is in line with being a professional. So it's like, I don't know, there are ideas of what they're supposed to be is what ends up taking over rather than like the reality. So they're kind of like conditioned to have like no real emotions about things. And I think that's why we're seeing them be more in their niche role rather than in their trope. Yeah. Because I guess tropes in adult life are not as solidified as they are in high school life. Not because your experience diversifies so much as you go into different careers. Although we all know that within certain careers, there are very true tropes that people fit into. And at times it's to your advantage to fit into the trope of your profession because it plays on what other people expect you to see. And that's part of professionalism. Like Rob is exactly what you would expect a grip to be like. <laughs> uh, no, not really. Like, like, no, no. If you're around a lot of grips, I don't think I'd fit in very well at all. Rob study, studies philosophy. That's yeah, Rob has muscles and can like build construction <laughs> and like works with lights. But then again, look at his backpack. It's filled with like Nietzsche. But I mean, grips are are fucking the island of lost toys. So like, there's yeah, such a weird variety of us. I mean, yeah. can, can yeah. I ask? I'm just out of curiosity. Did you? Well, one, did you guys have? I guess social hierarchy kind of groups in your high school and two did you were you like in one of them and which one were you in because I actually I don't know if I could pinpoint either of you hmm. so I mean I, I won Sperler for most unique wait really hmm. yeah yeah but but like cool. freshman year I was probably in like the stoner group but then I like quit smoking so I don't know I kind of drifted into somewhere else so my school Calhoun had the sports but we also had a massive massive theater program we were a magnet so the other two schools in the district had shitty theater programs because we stole all their best kids and i was in the theater program but our theater program was so big that there were multiple cliques within it but i was the one who didn't actually fit into any of those i worked in in the pit beneath the stage not the orchestra pit that was where like kind of all the kids who were in drama but weren't quite fitting in as well would gather i like became friends with all of them and they were all really cool i would kind of jump around between clicks though i, I feel like i was always someone who was going between them not really belonging everywhere but also having some small yeah. foothold in everywhere 
our, I feel like our school also, I mean, we, we did have a football program and like everyone had their friends, but people floated around. We didn't really have clicks. That was the word clicks. That was yeah. more of a junior high thing. So I'm, yeah, I'm kind of like in, in the same boat as you guys. I feel like, and you know, we went to high school in the 20, our, all, or all our high school years, we graduated 2010, right? Yeah. I'm 09. So yeah, I think going to what Rob was saying about the generational stuff, it is really interesting that come to the 2000s, yeah, clicks kind of seemed like they were fading out. This idea of the American teenager was kind of fading away, whereas like here in the 90s, it was really hyper-realized. Yeah, yeah. I, I think so, because I think a lot of like the popular music with Nirvana and all that like grunge stuff was kind of the idea of like rebelling against the stereotypes. So like the stereotypes that were almost like glorified a little bit in like the 80s, although they were like they were hyper realized in the 90s for the sake of foregoing them. I kind of feel like clicks have always been exaggerated in movies. I mean, these yes. clicks come from The Breakfast Club, literally, which was written by a how old white dude like <laughs> it, it wasn't John Hughes was not a teenager when he wrote The Breakfast Club. He was an adult. And he managed to identify a lot with teenagers and got teenagers to like his movie. But then everyone kind of just copied that formula and ran with it. I mean, you go back to like Rebel Without a Cause was probably the original teen movie. There's no clicks in it. The people have personalities, but they're not clicky. Yeah, yeah. but there were, there was always jocks, cheerleaders, and nerds in like every school. Yes, but it's... I don't... And that, that's always going to kind of be the case. And you're going to have yes. certain people who like fit specifically in that mold while most people probably drift in between. Yeah, I think that's the difference is that movies tend to not recognize the people who drift in between, which I think is really most of them. Even within the cliques, it doesn't feel like there's actual animosity between them. Yeah. But this movie does. Yeah. And I think that's really interesting is, again, going back to like what was popular in horror at the time, uh, the teen the teen flicks, it's kind of the studio saying, hey, teenagers, we see you. We recognize that you're not this 1980s, 1950s ideal mm. of an American teenager anymore. You do float in between. You do like to put a lot of makeup under your eyes, but you also like to wear Tommy Hilfiger. We see you. <laughs> we see you. Yeah. I mean... Uh, th there's another thing we should probably realize, and that's for us at least, and probably most of our listeners, we're millennials or Zoomers or whatever. And previous generations, bullying and hazing and stuff was a lot more extreme than probably, than hopefully we all experienced. Yeah. You know, that yeah. kind of thing did create a lot more animosity between certain groups, especially in schools and stuff. Whereas our school experience was kind of like after legal issues and lawsuits and things had kind of put a spotlight on those. No, I got bullied. That animosity. I'm sure you did, but People you didn't. People got beat up at my school. Yeah, but it wasn't the same as it used to be. Like when I was in school, they used to joke about Freshman Friday and people used to get beat up, but no one was actually getting like destroyed and thrown in lockers. They didn't beat me up, but they chased me with peanut butter, which could have killed me. So Yeah, oh. that's fucking terrifying. That's fucked up. I think it's changed. I think now it's all online. Yeah, yeah. that was a big thing it, during my high school experience, um, which is what makes this interesting for the 90s, too, is because we see we see this in the faculty. They do touch on media and how, I mean, at this point, it's social media, but around the new millennium, it was media in general and how the media is shaping minds. I mean, specifically talking about that scene where Stokely and, and Casey are, are discussing science fiction. Casey says, you know, the media, Spielberg, uh, <laughs> they're all talking about these aliens and, and making us believe something, mm. which is that aliens aren't real. Yeah, them and their baby blood. So since we're talking about the stereotypes, 
I am super curious how you think uh, Jennifer's body plays into this kind of idea of breakfast club stereotypes, because I don't think it's quite as clear what the uh, high school cliques and stuff are in that movie. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it does tropes instead. It does different kinds of tropes. It's not dealing with high school tropes specifically, although there are a few. You do have the jock. You do have the, the emo kid. But the, the main tropes are with the horror versus virgin thing, to quote the Captain in the Woods. Yeah, yeah. I think that's kind of interesting. So I kind, I kind of think it foregoes that, like, clicks of high school a little bit. Like, almost as soon as a the movie starts, bit. they say that, you know, we're not the typical high school friends. And in a way, even Jennifer yeah. is not, like, the typical head cheerleader. She's a lot more promiscuous, more of a party girl. And she is not just with, like, the quarterback. She's with a cop. She's trying to get with a band. Her best friends the needy. by the way her being with a cop is really fucked up because she is 17 yeah how do you think yeah. uh these tropes are affected by the whole possession angle of jennifer's body and, and in a way the faculty about how in in kind of in both ways like you're saying with the actual faculty being possessed by the parasites they almost become more of who they are like jennifer becomes in a way more needy more egotistical she has a yeah. increased god complex yeah we definitely already touched on it for the faculty but i agree yeah it, it's i mean if we're looking at this as as we were talking about in the beginning kind of like the sexualization of women in in a patriarchal world that's exactly what jennifer is turning into she is turning into she's turning into what kind of men fear too it's like this really hot girl but in the end she's gonna eat you like yeah you don't want that um so i agree <laughs> she's she's conforming she's conforming mm -hmm. and before i mean this is why i do really love megan's performance throughout this film before there is an innocence in her even though she's you know not a virgin even though she's hooking up with a bunch of guys she's still 17 and that still is like very much seen in her performance but once she becomes a succubus like that's mm. not there anymore yeah yeah, yeah, yeah her ideas about sex are extremely immature throughout the film that oh, sex 100%. is just yeah that's what that's one of the reasons why i like this film so much i think they really hit the nail on the head with that yeah i find it interesting that they think jennifer is a virgin mm -hmm. and they don't think that of needy they don't really look at Needy as a target, but they do are like, oh, Jennifer's definitely a virgin. It plays on the innocence of yeah. like high school in a way. How like you think high schoolers are all talk, but if you watch this movie along with other, you know, s disturbing films like Kids or the really disturbing movie Bully, where it shows like high school shit can really go down. Yeah. And but I think it, it's also commenting on this duality of what men want in women, right? It, it mm. is this whore harlot persona, but they also want them to be a virgin. Mm. And I think that's yeah. making a direct comment on it. And it's like, LOL, guys, come on. <laughs> I do want to point out, because I feel like we've been talking as Needy is assumed to be a virgin, but that's never actually stated in the movie. And we don't actually know because it is implied that she and Jennifer have done something before yeah. we don't know what we don't know the details of that so i'm on the fence of whether or not she's actually a virgin or if she lost her virginity to jennifer at some point oh i like that read can we talk about the queerness presented in both these films yes, i know please. we talked about the bisexuality in <laughs> in jennifer's body but the faculty also mentions queerness uh specifically female queerness with stokely's character even though she isn't actually gay yeah <laughs> but kevin williamson who wrote this film is mm -hmm. gay and has stated several times before that most of his teen slasher films and teen horror films are about the gay experience yeah i think that it's very very deeply coded from his end 
I mean, we're not talking about Scream right now, but there is a common theory of Scream where uh, Billy and Stu are a gay couple, which I love. And Williamson, even when he's saying that this movie is coded gay, he still like hasn't actually commented on that. But anyway, in the faculty, you have the queer character who's not actually queer. Like, it's not even that she's bi. She's literally like, I am not a lesbian. I am straight. It's like, what? Okay. And there's no other character who seems necessarily be gay. I mean, maybe, I don't think so. I don't think any, I don't, I don't get the read that any of them are coded. I don't think there are any gay characters in the faculty. Yeah. Well, unless, and I'm sure this is something that is relatable. I myself am not gay, so I can't necessarily speak on this personally, but based off of my friend's experiences, I mean, Stokely could still be gay and to the point where like we were talking about how they slightly conform at the end, especially Stokely. There's a point where like maybe even though you are questioning, you do conform because of the way the world is. But at some point you could become yourself again. I went to this really interesting conversation that the Miskatonic Institute put on Mm. where this horror scholar, Daniel Shepard, no relation, talks about the contemporary teen slasher, specifically talking about Kevin Williamson and the turn of the millennium and discusses that, you know, these teen slashers, especially what Kevin wrote, are a way of escapism. They they are about the gay experience, but they're also a way for escapism for gay and queer people. And the, the reason that we don't see as many gay characters in these films is because how hard would it be for yourself, a gay person in the 90s already struggling with these these issues, to see a person on screen also struggling with these issues, and then you have to like relive these experiences where instead you could have this escapist reality seen through a final girl like a like a Nev Campbell or a Jennifer Love Hewitt who can overcome all of this and still be a representation of someone who isn't necessarily like a straight white man, but still like someone on the a little more of an outsider overcoming things rather yeah. than seeing a gay. I mean, now it's different. Now we're like, no, let's see these stories but at that time people were using it more as as an escapist fantasy if that made sense it does but i think it just kind of speaks to the time so people were more closeted in western society because that's not the case in other places than they are now we need to remember also that like yes kevin williamson is an openly gay man but he was writing in the late 90s this was like in the middle of don't ask don't tell if if he had written openly gay characters in these movies the, the weinsteins would have said no yeah, I think that's a very fair point. Yeah, <laughs> they need to, uh, well, it, which is so funny because, you know, they're going to say no, because no, we need to appeal to the masses. At the same time, they're trying to appeal to this new audience that is the new generation that is like this. And they're talking about specifically like individualism. Yeah. So why not? Why not write gay characters? Why not honor yeah. this this outsider? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Of the time. I mean, yeah. this is conformity, right? Like, yeah. it's how yeah. do you honor individualism, but also basically stay alive in a world where conformity is at the forefront? I do have a quote on this that I did want to pull. Sorry, just give me. Oh, oh, yeah, here we go. So like any other high school movie, the classroom scenes, they're always studying something that has to do with the theme. <laughs> so in the history class, the the teacher quotes. This is. Which movie? The faculty. Only through conformity among the masses can the unified state offer the benefit of power, order, and security. And so it's basically saying like, yeah, you can't live a happy life, a secure life, a life that is basically livable (laughs) unless you conform in some sense. And but also at the same time, the government can't control you unless you conform. Yeah, pretty much. And I think that sums it up. 
Yeah, it's easier to control demographics if they all act the same way. Uh, I actually think the faculty wasn't that good, but we will talk about that now in my favorite section, which is the bone review section, where we rate each film on a one through four bone rating system with half bones in between. I want to know what you guys think of Jennifer's body right now, starting with Devin. Ooh, Jennifer's body. Oh, starting me a hard one. <laughs> I'm going to rate this three bones. I... There are a lot of things I love about this movie. I, I wanted to like it a lot more, and, but I think a lot of the story elements just didn't hold up. They didn't make a lot of sense. I had a lot more questions after watching the film than I thought I would have. I will blame a lot of that on the disproportionate view of the studio versus the director and the writer. I think that that is obviously clear in this film that there is mixed messaging but i think obviously i'm a huge fan of karen kusama i'm a giant fan of diablo cody she's like one of the reasons why i wanted to get into film in the first place i think the way that diablo cody writes about a patriarchal world and women within it struggling to find their individuality to find their identity while fighting against a world that tells them they can't is always fascinating she always finds a new way to do it the performances are amazing as i said megan fox like does a great job i also think that amanda Seyfried like she's what 22 in this she gives a really convincing high school performance she like raises her voice she like does this really subtle teenage performance which which i find really fascinating a lot of it's fun there's fun quips it's really i like the gore i like the effects but yeah i think the story for me just like doesn't hold up in the end so three bones uh david you want to tell us your thoughts i mean i i don't, I don't think the movie has mixed messaging i think that it is complex messaging i think it is multi-layered but i i don't see it as contradicting itself necessarily i fucking love this movie i think it's beautiful i think it's fun uh it's really well directed we haven't talked about that much but it's karen kusama she also did the invitation which we talked about and it, it, there's so much color throughout the film it's so rich and textured a lot of the set design is very bizarre and surreal like they have Amanda Seyfried in solitary confinement for a minute and the the room is just like a hundred stories tall. It's like, what is this room? I don't know, but it's awesome. It, it It's very stylized, very sleek, and it, it, it looks bizarre. It looks like we're in some other hell world or whatever. The performances are amazing. As you said, Megan Fox and Amanda Seyfried are both great. The soundtrack is fucking kick ass. I love Through the Trees. Sorry, Rob. I think it's an awesome song. I really don't have many issues with it. I it's it's infinitely quotable. Every line is a brilliant quote. I I like uh you you're you're totally jello, you're lime green jello. I feel like that should be a phrase that deserves to catch on. It's very heathers-esque in how it's it they use slang that isn't really slang. It's made up slang for the world of this movie which kind of prevents it from aging to some extent because it's not like this is ever a way that people talk so it's always going to remain just as it was then uh they don't really do too much pop culture references in this one actually it's really good it's a really good movie i love this movie three and a half bones rob you're up move on.org okay move it on.org uh <laughs> dot co because i can't afford the uh domain name you know th this is another cool one because uh, i'm gonna have to agree with you guys i'm gonna right off the bat i'm gonna give this three bones because i really enjoy this nice. movie and uh i do like the uh the word choice and the dialogue a lot and i think using unique dialogue and having your characters be wittier than people in real life highlights the dialogue to be more interesting than real life i never want to hear characters being more boring 
than the people I talk to in uh, everyday life. I also, I don't know. I, I just think all the characters are really cool in this. The acting's great. Uh, the band Low Shoulder is like a purposely terrible. And I love that about it. I'm a big fan. So three bones. Nice. Let's, uh, let's keep this going. So Devin, you picked these movies. So you're the first to tell us about them. What do you think about The Faculty? The Faculty I'm back and forth on. I've watched it a couple times over the past month. I like it a lot more. This is actually the first time I've ever seen it. Oh surprisingly yeah i think i would give it two and a half bones i think for me the film still feels like kind of an extended episode of buffy mm -hmm. which is like not to knock it down in any way it just kind of felt like kind of made for tv movie-esque after school special i think they didn't utilize robert rodriguez enough i think i def it definitely would have benefited from more kevin williamson witty dialogue but otherwise like it's fun. I mean, it it really is. It's just a fun film. I wish I thought as a teenager, I would have fucking loved the hell out of it. I like the alien aspect. I like that it really honors a lot of the classic sci-fi stories. It obviously has problems. We talked about them throughout the, the episode. So I feel like I don't need to highlight them as much here. But yeah, I had a good time. Two and a half bones. Rob, what about you? The faculty. I remembered liking this a lot more than I did watching it this time. Uh, I agree. If it had a little bit more Robert Rodriguez humor, it definitely had his style of looking almost like a TV movie, but not quite, which gives it his own unique style. I wish it had more of his editing jokes. Again, it felt like it was supposed to be Scream, but not quite. And if they played it as if it were a completely knowing, winking, funny parody of science fiction movies, it would have been better than this weird twist on The Breakfast Club. It's still okay, uh, and it's got really good visuals, I think, that hold up well. And plus, you get to see Jon Stewart get killed, uh, which is nice. I like Jon Stewart. It's just fun watching him die. Two bones. I think it's okay. Uh, David, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I love this movie. I am going to, again, be the one who rates the highest, I think. But I'm glad that you gave it two bones. I thought you were going to go lower. I just find it so much fun. Like, it is, it is very sloppy. Don't get me wrong. I totally understand not liking this movie very much. Like, it's very sloppy. It has a lot of problems. Uh, we touched on most of them. Sometimes the cast is a bit bloated. There are some people who are interesting but don't get enough to do. A lot of it feels like glorified cameos. I feel like really only uh, Phoebe Newirth and Robert Patrick are the only ones of the faculty who actually have a lot of substance, and some of the others probably could have been combined or something. But it's really funny watching Famke Jackson's head crawling around like the thing is fun to me. Some of the loose ends don't get quite tied up well enough. Like, but what happened to B.B. Newworth? Because we see that Jon Stewart is still alive in the end. He comes back. He has an eye patch. Is B.B. Newworth alive? I don't know. They don't tell us. We don't see her. <laughs> what happened to Fraser's ex-wife? <laughs> But I love it. It's so much fun. I kind of love it for its sloppiness to some extent because it just feels like a movie that was made with so much unbridled passion and like not holding itself back. I think both of these movies have a really fun vision and styling to them that were then let down by the marketing in some extent. Faculties may be a little bit more compromised by capitalism controlling it and making it conform at the end, but I don't care. I love this movie. They they compare Elijah Wood to Sigourney Weaver and ask why he's Sigourney Weaver and his reaction is everything in the world. So three bounce. All right. Well, I'm glad you liked it. That was another Cadaver Dogs podcast. I'll see you much soon. You know what this is for? It's for cutting boxes. <laughs> <laughs>